0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We are in between sermon series today And uh, I figured we have not spent a Sunday focusing on a text that is specific to how we work through the difficulties and challenges of COVID-19 for a while. We haven't done that since the first few months of the pandemic. And uh, I thought that uh, this would be a timely moment for us to learn additional lessons that the Lord would teach us through Scripture and how to navigate through the challenges of this pandemic. Now imagine going to church one Sunday and meeting someone whom you really like, not in the romantic sense, but in the the friendship sense. You you find out that you have a lot in common with this person. You are in a similar stage of life. You, you, You both love the Lord. You both have a passion for the things of the word. And you start thinking, hey, I I could see myself really becoming good friends with this person. And so you invite them over to your house post-COVID, of course, for lunch, and they gladly accept. You ask the customary question of whether there are any dietary restrictions. And this friend simply and somewhat jokingly replies, well, if the Bible says I can eat it, I can eat it. So you buy a couple of big juicy steaks because you want to do something special for this friend of yours and you even break out a bottle of vintage wine that you've been waiting to serve on a special occasion. But when you serve the meal with eager anticipation for the response of your friend to this wonderful meal that you have produced, your friend says, oh, sorry, I don't eat meat. Wait a second, you reply. I thought you said you'll eat anything if the Bible says you can eat it. And your friend says, well, yeah. The Bible says I can't eat meat. It also says I can't drink wine, so you better put that bottle of wine away as well. Now, after you've gotten over your initial reaction of shock and surprise, you you realize that your friend must not have read Acts chapter 10, where uh, Peter receives a vision from the Lord of a great curtain containing all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, And it descends from heaven to earth and God declares, kill Peter and eat. You can eat it. You can eat it all. And he receives this vision not just once, but three times to confirm this is indeed a revelation from God. But as you open up the word and you explain this, your friend says, of course, I've I've read that. I know that. I know that's in the Bible. So then you realize that. This friend needs a little bit more biblical education. So you open up to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus says that whatever goes into a person from outside does not make them unclean. But instead, what comes from the inside, the sinful thoughts and words and temptations and desires that come out of our hearts, those are the things that make us unclean. And you point to the very specific comment that The gospel writer Mark includes where he says, and thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And your friend says, yes, I know that as well. But I'm still convinced that the Bible tells me that eating meat is wrong. Drinking wine is wrong and I want to glorify God and I want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. If I want to do that, I have to be a vegetarian. Now, how would a conversation like that change your relationship with that person would you think oh well so much for becoming friends this person's pretty weird or would you shrug your shoulders and say well to each his own and pull out the spare cabbage in your fridge would you be able to attend the same church with such different biblical convictions would you be able to sit under the same preaching of god's word Would you be able to participate in the same small group? Now, this example may sound far-fetched, but COVID-19 has made us ask similar questions. What if your friend was not disagreeing with you on the issue of food, but on masks, or on vaccines, or on whether churches should abide by government lockdowns? Can believers who disagree on these issues still live in unity? Can can they still be part of the same church? Well, that's the question that our text today helps us to answer. But before we get into the text, I, I want to pause for a personal note as your pastor to commend us, to commend our church, to commend Sovereign Grace Church for not letting secondary controversial issues divide us. I know that people in our church have different opinions about these issues, but you have not let these opinions lead to division. And that is so rare in times like this, when we believe that we can only walk in fellowship with those who believe exactly the same things as us. That has not been the case here at our church. And so on behalf of our pastors and on behalf of our leadership team, I want to thank you and I want to commend you for your unity, your unity with one another and your unity with our leadership team. We have gone through a tremendously trying and challenging time in a time that could be potentially divisive, but we have endured it together. And so my, my hope in preaching this sermon is not to bring correction uh, to, to reorient us where we have strayed. No, instead, my hope is that this sermon will give you biblical categories for understanding how this is possible, how that kind of unity works. How, how can people remain united in one body when they don't just have different opinions, but they have different biblical convictions? Now, there are times that we need to divide Uh, I believe in the division that resulted from the Protestant Reformation. Division is necessary when it comes to essential essential issues like the Trinity, like the authority of Scripture, like the person and work of Jesus Christ, like the nature of sin, like like the definition of marriage even, and what it means to be a man and a woman. Those are essential issues that that may justify division. But if our differences rest on non-essential issues like masks, like vaccines, or even politics, then Romans 14 tells us we can still not only be unified in theory, but welcome one another relationally. We can welcome one another. And that, that is the title of this sermon. It is welcoming those who disagree with us welcoming those who disagree with us. This chapter gives us three reasons why we should welcome brothers or sisters in Christ who have different biblical convictions. Now, because we're working through the entire text of this chapter in one sermon, we're not gonna go through every single verse like we usually do, but instead we'll hit the highlights Uh, that will give us three reasons for why we should welcome brothers or sisters in Christ who have different biblical convictions. The first is that they have been welcomed by God. Second, they desire to honor the Lord. And third, they should follow their conscience. Let's begin with our first point, they have been welcomed by God. You see in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, Paul writes of those who are weak in faith. Weak in faith. He's not talking about those who are weak in character, but those who are weak in faith because their faith does not permit them to do things that the Bible permits them to do. We see that in verse two where Paul writes, one person believes he may eat anything. We could call those who are strong in faith. And indeed in Romans 15 verse one, Paul calls them the strong in faith. Uh, But he says, while the weak person, that is the one who is weak in faith, eats only vegetables. So those who were weak in faith didn't allow themselves to eat meat. They believed that they could only eat vegetables. That The weak in faith, in other words, had imposed a more rigorous moral standard on themselves than the Bible required. We see another example of this in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. That would be the weak in faith. While another esteems all days alike. That would be the strong in faith. And so the weak in faith believed that there were certain days that were more important than other days. That was likely the Sabbath day. They were abiding by uh, the, the Jewish understanding of the Sabbath. Which says that you shall not literally do any work on the Sabbath day. But it could have also referred to Jewish feasts as well. The point is, yet again, they are conforming to a moral and religious standard that no longer applies to New Testament believers. We know that these standards no longer apply because of texts like Acts chapter 10 and Mark 7, which refer to the cleanliness of all food, that we cannot be defiled by the things that we eat. And Hebrews chapter 4, which says that the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ, that he gave us rest from our works. We find our rest in Jesus Christ. Now, it remains a wise and helpful principle for us to rest, to acknowledge our finite limitations by not working seven days a week, but it is no longer a matter of moral conviction. We also know that this is what the Bible teaches because of what Paul says in in chapter 14, verse 14, where he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He is speaking as an interpreter of scripture and as a, a spirit inspired apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Nothing is unclean in itself, which means that for the Christian, everything is on the dinner table. Christians can eat pork, you can eat shellfish. You can eat animals that chew the cud even though they don't have cloven feet. And you can eat animals that have cloven feet even though they don't chew the cud. We can eat all kinds of meat prepared in all sorts of ways because that's the freedom that Christ has bought for us. And yet, as we see in this chapter, there were Christians in the early church who didn't believe these things. And it is important for us to note that these were indeed Christians. These weren't posers. These weren't the, the members of the circumcision party who said that you had to be circumcised and you had to obey the law of Moses in order to be right with God. If that were the case, then Paul would have condemned them, just like he did to the circumcision party in the letter to the Galatians. But he doesn't do that here. These, these people, they still had genuine faith. It may have been weak faith, but it was not no faith. Paul actually refers them as his brothers and sisters in verse 10 and verse 15, where he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And then he says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. These are Christians. These are men and women who are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, through, through the grace alone of God who are refusing to eat meat and who are observing special days. Now they clearly came to the wrong conclusions and yet Paul says, welcome him. Verse one, for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him into your life. Welcome him into your home. Welcome him into your Life, your, as, as your brother in Christ, don't welcome him just to quarrel over opinions. Don't just have him over to your house so that you can whack him over the head with a Bible. The point isn't to have a theological debate. The point is to show this brother or sister love that they are due as fellow Christians. This command to love applies equally to those who were weak in faith, to the vegetarians in the Roman church, in verse three, he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? Well, because God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. This is where we see theology meeting practice. Once again, we see doctrine meeting practice. Culture, where where the big ideas of the gospel change the way that we live and how we treat one another. We are to welcome one another because God has welcomed us in Christ. Of course, this implies that we needed to be welcomed in the first place. There was a time when we were unwelcomed. We were unwelcomed into God's presence because of our sin, because we were apart from the Savior. But but Jesus, he, he changed that. Jesus on the cross was alienated from the Father so that we could be reconciled to him. Jesus on the cross was forsaken so that we could be accepted. And Jesus on the cross was sent far away and forsaken by God so that we could be brought near and welcomed. God has welcomed us. He has welcomed the weak in faith. And he has welcomed the strong in faith. He has welcomed those who eat anything put before them. That's a good thing because I'm in that category. And he welcomes those who only eat vegetables. He welcomes, you could say, those who believe in the true and genuine dangers of COVID. And he welcomes those who doubt its true risks. And so if a holy God welcomes sinners like us, how much more should we fellow sinners welcome one another? Romans 15 verse seven says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You wanna know how to glorify God? We talk about that, we wanna to live to glorify God. Well, if you wanna glorify God, then follow Romans 15 verse seven. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And that includes those who have different biblical convictions. Second, we, believe, we, we welcome believers who disagree with us because they desire to honor the Lord. They desire to honor the Lord. Now notice that Paul never tells these two groups of believers that their opinions about food and their opinions about special days don't matter. He never says, hey, you shouldn't have such strong convictions about these things because they are secondary issues. No, instead, he says the exact opposite. In verse five, he says one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. And then he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If you believe that you should eat only vegetables and abstain from meat, you should be fully convinced of that In your own mind. This sounds like what my orchestra conductor used to tell us when I was in an orchestra in high school. He said, if we're going to play the wrong note, we better play it loud. Because he'd rather have us play the wrong notes well than to play the right notes poorly. And that's what Paul is saying here. Whatever you believe about food, whatever you believe about Sabbaths, whatever you believe about Whether you can drink wine or not, be fully convinced in your own mind, even if you're wrong. Now, we don't want to read too much into this. He's not encouraging believers to be fully convinced of heresy. He's talking about secondary issues, incidental issues like food and Sabbaths, or our modern-day equivalents of masks and vaccines, He's saying, whatever you believe about these secondary issues, you can be fully convinced in your own mind that this is what the Bible teaches, that this is what following the Lord requires. But why why is that? Why should we be fully convinced in our own minds? Well, it's because we do these things and we believe these things unto the Lord. Look at verse six. It says, the one who observes the day that is the one who holds up the Sabbath or a special feast day as a special day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Listen, God doesn't just care about us having all the right answers. He cares about us having the right heart. If we are fully convinced that we should observe special days, well, that honors the Lord because we're doing it for him. If we're fully convinced that we should abstain from eating meat, well, that honors the Lord, even if God didn't say we had to because we're doing it for him. And if we eat everything that is set before us, fully believing that the Old Testament laws have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we can honor the Lord as well because we eat and give thanks to God. We honor him. God looks at the heart so that even if we get a secondary issue wrong, God is honored because we are doing it for him. We honor the Lord by our obedience, even when God hasn't told us to obey in that specific way. Let me give you an example. Some pastors and their churches believe that the Lord commands them to meet in person every single Sunday without without exception. They have to meet every single Sunday on the Lord's Day for corporate worship as an entire church in order to be faithful to God. And the result is that they've continued to meet during lockdowns, believing that the only way they can be faithful to the Lord is to disobey the government and meet every Sunday as a church. Now, I don't agree that that is what the Bible requires, but I can still respect them because they are meeting to honor the Lord. They are disobeying the government to honor the Lord. Romans 14 doesn't just tell me or challenge me to acknowledge them or pray for them, but even to welcome them because what they're doing, they're doing to honor the Lord. Paul, again, he roots this application, this way of treating one another in gospel truth. Verses 7 to nine. He he says, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. What Paul is saying there is from birth to death, the life of the Christian is devoted to the Lord. This is why Jesus died and was raised so that he could be the Lord of our lives. And as the Lord of our lives, our lives no longer just reflect on ourselves, but on him. And everything that we do, everything we believe, should be done with the recognition that it reflects on Jesus. There is something intensely personal about the fact that each of us lives and dies, not for ourselves, but for the Lord. And if that's the case, Paul asks, who are we, that is, who are we as Christians to judge our fellow Christians? They they don't belong to us. They're not accountable to us. They are the servant of another master, and he will hold them to account. He will judge them, just like he will judge us. In his commentary on Romans, John Stott writes, we have no warrant to climb onto the bench, place our fellow human beings in the dock and start pronouncing judgment and passing sentence because God alone is judge and we are not. Now we need to preface that by recognizing that scripture does also teach that it is the role of the church to judge sinful conduct. That's why church discipline exists. Paul says, are are we not to judge one another? Does not judgment belong in the household of God? We, we are to judge when it comes to sin. But when it comes to issues of conscience, which we are going to get at in our third point, we are not to judge one another. We are to welcome one another. We are not the judge. On the contrary, we are the judged. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If we're gonna picture the courtroom of judgment, we're not to place that Christian in that other church in the dock, or that Christian sitting across the sanctuary in the dock, or that Christian living in our household in the dock, we are to place ourselves in the dock for God to judge us. We are to give an account for ourselves. Each of us will stand before God, our master, and when we do, God will not ask us whether we wore masks or got the vaccine or whether we had the right political opinions. He he will ask us instead, whatever you did, did you do it for me? Did you do it to honor me? That should be our focus. Lastly, we welcome those who disagree with us because they should follow their conscience. Because they should follow their conscience. The conscience is one of the most important parts of the Christian life. And yet it doesn't receive nearly the amount of attention that it should. That is because we, we don't like how the conscience makes us feel. We have become experts in our therapeutic age, not at listening to our conscience, but silencing it. When we feel guilt for doing something that was wrong, we, we, we tell ourselves or we, we want our friends to surround us and pat us on the back and say, cheer up, it wasn't so bad. Just forget about it. But the Bible calls us, when we feel the guilt of our sin, the Bible calls us to repent. Not just to overlook our sin, but to repent, to turn away from it. To to let that godly grief function as a means to true repentance so that you stop sinning and receive the comfort of knowing that Jesus died for your sins. Many of you will know the story of the Pilgrim's Progress where the main character, Christian, he, he struggles with this increasingly heavy burden on his back. And that burden symbolizes the guilt of his sin. And Christian, he, he traveled through the, 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 the muck of despondency and the temptations of Mr. Worldly Wise and the allure of legalism until he finally gets to the cross. And it's by looking to the cross that his burden is removed. Well, if we were to live in and through the pilgrim's progress today, we would not remove our burden of guilt by looking to the cross. We would try to remove our guilt by building up our self-esteem. We look to ourselves rather than to Jesus for the cleansing of the conscience because we see the conscience as a curse that distracts us from trusting and believing in ourselves rather than a gift that leads us to trust God. My friends, the conscience is a gift because it reminds us that we are not God and we could never be God. Only God can be God. And he is the only one who does what is right and wise all the time. The conscience also keeps us from doing what is wrong. It's like what you could say it's your internal alarm system that warns us when we're approaching moral danger. Don't do that, it warns you. It's, it's gonna hurt you. It's going to hurt those you love around you. It is going to break fellowship with the God whom you love. Don't, don't do that. It warns us from doing what is wrong and it rewards us when we do what is right. When you, when you shovel your neighbor's driveway or, or you bring a meal to a new parent and you feel the joy of doing that good work to bless another person. That is your conscience. That is your conscience affirming that what you did was good and right. Now what does the conscience have to do with this topic of welcoming those who disagree with us? Well, it teaches us that we must learn to respect the fact that people must listen to their conscience. Listen, they must listen to their conscience even if their conscience isn't completely accurate. Okay, we, we, we have a conscience, yes, but it is often uncalibrated. It is not guided by the north star of God's word. It is, it is skewed somehow. And yet, it is still important for us to follow our conscience. That's the argument Paul makes in verses 13 to 23. Look at verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That's the objective truth about food. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Paul knows that eating meat doesn't offend God, but he says it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If someone's conscience tells them that eating meat is wrong, it becomes wrong for them. It becomes wrong for them. They may not be sinning against God by eating meat, but they are sinning against God by acting against their conscience. You see the difference? This highlights one of the central arguments of Romans chapter 14. It tells us that we don't just sin when we offend God's law. We sin when we offend our own conscience. If we act against our conscience, we sin, even if the act itself wasn't sinful, Paul explains why in verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. That is, the one who believes that eating meat is wrong, he is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the key to understanding these verses and what it says about the conscience. We sin when we go against our conscience because we are not proceeding from faith. We're not believing that God has allowed us to do that. The Roman Christians who were weak in faith weren't trusting that the gospel had made a way for them to eat anything that was presented before them and to enjoy every day equally. So, if they went ahead and ate meat or if they went ahead and worked on the Sabbath, they would be sinning because what they did did not proceed from faith. Faith. This is the final reason why we should welcome those who disagree with us. We must respect the fact that they must follow their conscience. They must do or not do what their faith allows. We could do, those who don't have the same burdens on our conscience, we could do the opposite things and not sin. Because the act itself is not sinful. But if they did what we did, then they would sin because they didn't act do you see what Paul is saying? Now, Someone might say, well, doesn't this make the conscience the, uh, the, uh, the ultimate standard of morality? Doesn't this make morality subjective? Like what is right and what is wrong depends on what that person believes is right and wrong? I mean, doesn't this mean that I can steal or lie or kill or sleep around as long as my conscience doesn't bother me? Well, of course not. The conscience isn't the ultimate standard of what is right and wrong. The word of God is our standard, and it's clearly told us that those things are wrong. But if God's word tells us, listen, if God's word tells us that we can do something, but we still don't believe we can, then we sin if we go and do it anyways. Re- remember this line from Mark Dever. This is, this is the best way to encapsulate what the conscience can do and what the conscience can't do. He says, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. That is so helpful. It can't turn something that is clearly wrong according to the scriptures. It can't make that right. But it can make something that the scripture says is right for you to do, that you can do that. But if you, if you don't believe that you can do that, but you go and do it anyways, you have made it wrong. It has become sinful. the conscience was so important to Paul that he says that if you eat meat, if you have a strong faith, if you have a biblically oriented conscience, you eat meat, but your brother with a weak conscience is then tempted to sin by your example, then you shouldn't eat meat anymore. If your good conscience wounds the weak conscience of your fellow Christian by tempting them to do what they believe is wrong, then he says you need to stop. As he says in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died, and they would be destroyed by doing what they believe is wrong. Love is the guiding principle here. It is more important. Love is more important than being right. Love is more important than convincing people to to conform to your understanding of what is right and wrong, even if your understanding is biblically accurate. Love is the guiding principle. It is even more important than exercising your own gospel rights. Paul sums all this up in verses 17 to 19 where he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is why this matters so much. This is why we should be willing to lay down our rights The Roman Christians should be willing to lay down their rights to eat whatever was presented before them, to treat every day equally. It's because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. My friends, these are the things that are meant to define us as a community, as a local church. These are the things that we're supposed to be talking about the most, not about politics, though we can talk about politics. What should be the passion of our community? Our righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The righteousness that Christ has bought for us and calls us to. The peace that we experience through the unifying work of the Spirit. And the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. That is what unites us as believers. That is what unites us as a church. That is what holds us together. Listen, if you've been part of our church for any length of time, you know that truth matters in our church. But if we hold truth to be the ultimate value in secondary and non essential issues, then we are going to sacrifice love. And we are going to stop honoring the Lord. Truth and love, applied with their right proportions, depending on the situation, are equally important in the life of the church. Now, if we would use one word, maybe two words to define our culture today, it would be it's a divisive culture and it is an angry culture. There is so much division and disagreement and vitriol online and in public debate that we just think, well, where, where is the world going? What is, what is going to happen People are starting to talk about another American civil war. Could that be possible? Because of the amount of hatred and inability to to talk through things. Because that's what the real problem is today. The the main problem is, is not that we have disagreements, but we have forgotten how to disagree well. And that is because we take disagreement to mean disrespect. We take disagreement to mean disrespect. If you disagree with someone with their strongly held opinion. You're not just expressing a different perspective. You are insulting them. You are seen as attacking them. Romans 14 shows us a better way. It shows us that unity does not have to mean uniformity. It shows us that diversity doesn't have to mean division. We can have diverse opinions about issues that aren't essential to our faith and still be united. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of masks and vaccines or political opinions or even political theology. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those who disagree can be fully convinced in their own minds and still pursue peace. We don't like that because it seems mushy. It seems relativistic. It seems like we're compromising on our convictions and that is certainly a danger. But Paul shows us that we can be fully convinced in our own minds, fully committed to truth and pursue love at the same time by remembering what the kingdom of God is all about. And so if you believe that the church should indeed shut down during lockdowns and that everyone should wear masks and everyone should get vaccines for the safety of other people and you meet a fellow believer who disagrees with you, don't insult them. Don't even lecture them. Instead, welcome them as Christ has welcomed them. Recognize that what they do, what they believe, they, they do and believe to honor the Lord and recognize that, that it, is, it is good for them to follow their conscience The same applies to those who are on the other side of the spectrum. If you say that the time is right for civil disobedience, for churches to disobey lockdowns, or that wearing a mask is capitulating to fear, or that vaccines are a gross intrusion on our liberty, and you meet a fellow believer who disagrees with you, welcome them as Christ has welcomed them. Recognize that what they do and what they believe, they do and believe to honor the Lord. And remember that it is good and it is right for them to follow their conscience. And let us all remember and live by this classic statement as we journey through these dark and divisive times. It says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let's pray. Father, we know how important unity is to you. When Jesus prayed that his people would be one, just as he and the Father are one, our unity as churches is meant to display the unity within the Trinitarian persons of the Godhead. Our unity says something about who you are, about your nature, about your character, about your perfection. And we recognize that there are times to divide. And that is sad. That is a tragedy. But we want, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we pray, Father, for wisdom. We pray for charity to show to one another when we are tempted to divide over our disagreements. We pray that what would hold us together would not be eating and drinking, would not be masks and political opinions, but it would be righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to remember what makes us a church in the first place, not politics, not culture, not language, the gospel and the gospel alone. We ask for this, for our sake, for the sake of the churches around us, and for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.